Welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and today we're going to talk about hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. This is one of the most common surgical problems in newborns and is definitely something that you're going to work up and diagnose in the pediatric emergency department. So what is it? Well, it's progressive narrowing of the pyloric channel due to hypertrophy of the muscle, which leads to gastric outlet obstruction. Classically, this is seen in male infants. Interestingly, firstborn males are more common, and the male-to-female ratio is about 4 to 1. Overall, the etiology of hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is probably multifactorial. There's some genetic predisposition and environmental factors. Interestingly, it has been associated with the administration of macrolide antibiotics like erythromycin or azithromycin in the first few weeks of life. This holds for babies that get the medicine or breastfeeding mothers that are prescribed macrolides. Infants that have been feeding well previously present somewhere between two to five weeks of age, and I've seen it later, with progressive vomiting after feeding, but they're still hungry. The parents really describe these kids as voracious eaters. They want to feed after vomiting. Once the obstruction becomes more complete, the vomiting becomes more forceful and projectile. Some children can look perfectly fine. Others can be very dehydrated and emaciated with loss of subcutaneous fat and skin that makes them look like a Sharpay, you know, those wrinkly dogs. On physical exam, there are some findings that are specific to pyloric stenosis. There's the gastric peristaltic wave as the stomach peristalsis against the obstructed pyloric channel. So you'll see kind of a a wave of a bubble in the upper abdomen. The second is that olive, which is the hypertrophied pyloric muscle that you can feel underneath the skin. And though most of you have heard about the olive, I'd wager that few of you have actually felt one. So you kind of have to set the stage if you're going to feel an olive in the first place. So the infant feeds, then vomits, so their stomach's empty, but that pyloric muscle is contracted or spasming at that point. You got to relax the abdominal muscles. So this involves flexing the legs and feeling gently and palpating in the epigastrium. Other physical exam findings are, of course, signs of dehydration. You also might see in babies with more advanced conditions, sparing of head growth. So they can look like a lollipop with a big head and very thin dehydrated limbs. The key to making the diagnosis is clinical suspicion. So you have to ask a good history about feeding, specifically, what is the infant feeding, how much, how often, their hunger cues, and then a description of the vomiting. It is far more common for a baby to have GERD than it is for them to have pyloric stenosis. And one parent's description of what projectile means could be different from another. In premature infants, for instance, their vomiting may not be as forceful, and they may not show the same level of hunger cues as bigger babies. While the vomit of most babies with pyloric stenosis is stomach contents and partially digested milk, some babies can actually have blood in their vomit, which results from forceful emesis and leaking or bruising of the gastric wall. Bilious emesis can occur in more severe cases of pyloric obstruction, but obviously it's a red flag for bowel obstruction in the newborn and should be taken incredibly seriously. And before I move on to diagnosis and evaluation, 
It's important to remember that the differential diagnosis of idiopathic hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is broad, but mainly includes physiologic gastroesophageal reflux, cow's milk protein intolerance, both of which are relatively benign, and more severe disorders that present with vomiting in the first two months, including adrenal crisis, intestinal obstruction due to things like malrotation, Hirschsprung's or intussusception, liver disease like biliary atresia, or metabolic disorders. Making the diagnosis of idiopathic hypertrophic pyloric stenosis starts with a high index of suspicion and is confirmed on ultrasound. It's readily and easily established when you have skilled sonographers at hand. So if you're in a primary care setting or at an outlying facility, perhaps referring to a children's hospital or tertiary care center with ultrasonographers would be appropriate. As I alluded to a moment ago, in the hands of an experienced sonographer, ultrasound is incredibly accurate with sensitivity and specificity approaching 95%. There are two measurements that are most important, channel width and channel length. And there's a helpful little mnemonic that'll help you remember what's too wide and too long. So the channel width, if it's greater than 3 millimeters, and if the channel length of the pyloric muscle is greater than 14 millimeters, that can make the diagnosis. So wider than 3, greater than 14, pi, 3.14, pyloric stenosis. You're welcome. On transverse view, you'll see the classic target sign. Though hospital protocols vary, you often want an infant to be NPO for a short period of time before the ultrasound is performed because they're given something to drink and then they watch what happens to the pylorus when there's liquid in the stomach. And even if you feel an olive on physical exam, surgeons will want an ultrasound before taking a child with pyloric stenosis to the operating room. If the history of physical exam and ultrasound are non-diagnostic, or if you've got signs of more distal obstruction, like bilious vomiting or dilated small bowel on a conventional x-ray, you could consider an upper GI series to evaluate for pyloric stenosis, or more importantly, to look for alternative diagnoses. Labs are also an important part of the diagnostic process, and a renal or CHEM7 or electrolyte panel is mandatory in the evaluation of pyloric stenosis. And the timing of when to get the labs kind of depends on how the baby looks. If you have a high index of suspicion and the baby is dehydrated and needs resuscitation, by all means, place a line, treat the dehydration, get your electrolyte panel at the time, and then ultrasound. If your index of suspicion is lower but non-zero, you can get the ultrasound, and then if pyloric stenosis is the diagnosis, get an IV and send off the labs. Some experts will recommend a CBC as well, but it's really the electrolyte panel that's most useful. Not only does it help you further assess the degree of dehydration, but specifically the chloride and bicarb levels can be incredibly important. The classic findings that you'll see in pyloric stenosis are hypochloremic metabolic alkalosis. Sometimes babies will have low potassium as well. In essence, these babies are throwing up hydrochloric acid. And then potassium is excreted by the kidney in exchange for the resorption of hydrogen ions in response to the alkalosis that develops. Babies can develop a more profound metabolic acidosis as they get more dehydrated. Some children have such an aberrant 
metabolic balance that they present with apnea. But fortunately, that's a rare presentation, but can be seen in kids with delayed presentation or in under-resourced environments. Experts in the field indicate that you really should normalize some of your lab values before going to pyloromyotomy. Why is this important? Well, it's about getting the baby off the vent safely and not having post-operative apnea after surgery. So some of the values that end up being important, chloride greater than 100 millimoles per liter, bicarb less than 26 to 30 millimoles per liter, a pH of less than 7.45, potassium greater than 3.5, sodium greater than 132, and normal glucose. Almost two-thirds of infants with pyloric stenosis will present with normal electrolytes. In those cases, you'll obviously keep them NPO until surgery comes around, and you can place them on intravenous fluids such as 5% dextrose with one-half normal saline, considering the addition of 10 to 20 milliequivalents per liter of potassium chloride as well. Dehydrated infants should get isotonic fluids like normal saline at 20 ml per kilo bolus increments. You could also consider higher rates of fluid administration such as one and a half to two times maintenance. The management of pyloric stenosis in most patients is surgical. And the classical operation is called the Romstedt pyloromyotomy. This is a longitudinal incision of the hypertrophic muscle with blunt dissection to the level of the submucosa. This is designed to relieve the constriction and allow normal passage of stomach contents into the duodenum. Most often these days, this is done in a minimally invasive laparoscopic manner. This surgery is successful in the vast majority of babies, and feeding can be resumed shortly after the operation in most infants. In about four out of five patients, there's some modest regurgitation, which should not delay further feedings. Vigorous vomiting after the operation is uncommon. It is definitely possible for infants with surgically corrected pyloric stenosis to have reflux afterwards. So as pediatricians, we need to be prepared to assess and provide reassurance. It's far more likely for the baby to have GERD than it is for the pyloric surgery to have failed. Other techniques that have been described, but I'm not familiar with at my institution, include balloon dilation or medical management, such as anticholinergics, or even transpyloric feeding, like putting in a nasoduodenal tube. This data is much more limited than surgical approaches, which is why surgery with its high effectiveness rate is the standard of care. All right, well, that's it for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. Remember that it occurs in infants between their second and fifth week of life generally, though it can happen a little bit later, and is more common in males, especially firstborn males. You definitely want to get a renal panel and look for electrolyte abnormalities and resuscitate appropriately with fluids. And know that ultrasound is the diagnostic test of choice. Surgery has a very high cure rate and babies do great afterwards. If you'd like to check out more great educational content, you can go to pemblog.com. Follow me on Twitter at PemTweets. Leave a comment on the blog or review on your favorite podcast service. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.